evening. We welcome you back for those of you who have not heard Professor Strickland speak or those of you who have heard him before and have come again tonight. We welcome you also. And I'm not going to go through my usual spiel about the grades and everything and all the different things we always talk about. I think we might as well just get on to the assignment. Oh, Professor Trinkline. Thank you, Rob. Can you hear all right in the back? I never know how this thing is working. We have several things on the agenda this evening. I don't know exactly what sequence we'll do them yet, but for one thing, as advertised in the brochure, we're going to have an update on the newest comet, Comet Austin. We will also talk about eclipses this evening, briefly, where the next one is and what it's like to go there. We'll have our usual question and answer period, and the main part of the symposium will be how far away are the stars and where does the universe end? We'll start with Comet Austin. Now the reason Comet Austin is called that is because Mr. Austin discovered it. If you discover a comet, it's named after you. Mr. Austin discovered this comet in June in New Zealand. He's an amateur. He has a small telescope. I'm reading this from the Comet Digest. Uh, news service. That's not the biggest selling magazine in the world, but if you want to keep up on comets, you've got to get the Comet News Service. This has Mr. Austin's biography and everything, so I just read all this today. Mr. Austin is a 37-year-old amateur astronomer whose profession uh, is process camera operator on a newspaper, and his uh, shift is from 6.30 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. So he gets off work at 2.30 in the morning and he comes home and spends the rest of the dark hours looking for comets. And he has spent, by the time he discovered this comet in June, not very many hours. He's only been at it 151 hours. Now that's not very many. It took flight Tombo 7,000 hours to discover Pluto. But the, the important thing was when he saw the comet, and he said it was so windy that night on June 18th that he had to hang on to the telescope with both hands. And he wanted to go in and give up for the evening, but he thought, no, one more time, he'll take a look at a certain section of the sky. And there he saw a little fuzzy object, no tail, nothing spectacular, but it was fuzzy. That's the clue. A comet is a fuzzy little thing in the sky. And someone has said a comet is the closest thing to nothing that you can have and still have something. <laughs> Another astronomer has said if a comet's across the street, you wouldn't see it because it's so thin. The, the most thorough discussion of comets is by Dr. Fred Whipple, and he says a comet is a dirty iceberg. <laughs> we call that the dirty iceberg theory of Dr. Fred Whipple, and he does. He doesn't really know what it is, but he thinks it's a uh, snowball in space that is gradually evaporating as it gets closer to the sun, and the sun pushes a big long tail out. I'm going to show you a picture of a nice comet in just a moment, but first a little more about Comet Austin. It took two days to find out whether this comet really was a new one or not, or whether it was an old one coming back. If it's an old comet coming back, you don't have it named after you, 
you just get your name in the paper that you saw the old one coming back. The first person to see Halley's Comet for the first time in 1985 will not have it named after him, but will get his name in, and it'll say that Joan saw Comet Halley for the first time since 1910. So it's predicted to be visible in 1985, towards the end of the year. Comets also have another name, and that is a year and then a letter, and that's what Comet Austin is called, 1982G, because it's the seventh comet to be seen this year. So Comet Austin and 1982G are the same thing. It also has another name, and that is 1982 and a Roman numeral behind it to indicate in what sequence the comets of 1982 pass the sun. And the point at which something passes the sun is known as perihelion. Remember that, uh, that elliptical orbit of Kepler. Here's the sun. Here's a comet coming around. Let me draw the comet in here. One thing about comets is that the tail always points away from the sun. And that's because the sun is pushing on it. Well, I shouldn't really put it out there because as it gets farther from the sun, the tail disappears. And out here it doesn't have one. So the comet tail is always pointing away because of the radiation pressure of the sun. Light pushes. Sunlight pushes. And it's been measured. And this pressure is taking this 30 iceberg here, snowball, and evaporating it and pushing the tail out. It has a tail right now. I checked with two planetariums this afternoon, and a little while ago I checked with the comet expert of the country, who is an amateur, Mr. Portal. And I asked him, I'm lecturing tonight on Comet Austin, I said, is it visible? He said, yes, indeed it is. And he told me exactly where it is, and I'll tell you that in just a moment. I haven't seen it, but I intend to go out after the lecture and look for it. So it's also called 1982, and then a Roman numeral, which I don't know yet, because I don't know in what sequence Comet Austin passed the sun. Comet Austin passed this point tonight. This point is called perihelion. So it has reached perihelion passage as of about an hour or two ago. Out here is the farthest point from the sun. That's called aphelion. I'm not sure how far Comet Austin goes out. It's a new comet, you see. And so we don't know, or at least according to Mr. Borden on the phone tonight, he said some of these things are being revised and the exact size of its orbit is not yet fully determined. It may go out there and not come back for thousands of years. It may go out there and come back every three years, or it may go out and never come back. It all depends on whether it's an elliptic orbit, a parabolic orbit, or a hyperbolic orbit. It all depends on the gravitational attraction between the comet and the sun. It also depends on whether other planets like Jupiter out here pull on it as it goes past, and that can distort the orbit, or Jupiter can capture it. Then it becomes a Jovian comet. Jove is another name for Jupiter. When you say by Jove, you're really saying by Jupiter. Or if you're Greek, you can say by Zeus, or you can just say whatever other uh, mythology you're interested in. Now, 1982, and this supposing it's the second one to pass this year, those are the three names of Comet Austin. Well, it is visible, and let me draw this up here so that uh, you can go out and look for it yourself. Comet is visible to the naked eye because it has, at the present time this evening, a magnitude of five. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember Ptolemy years ago, 
who made that wrong theory up there. Well, another thing Ptolemy did that we still use is a series of magnitudes. That means brightnesses of objects in the sky. If something is very bright, we say, and Ptolemy said, it's magnitude one. If it's dimmer, it's magnitude two. It looks about half as bright to the eye, but actually it isn't. The eye is not a good light meter. Magnitude three is next, four or five, and you can see with the naked eye on a dark night without a moving lights at all, down to about magnitude six. Comet Austin tonight is magnitude five, so you should be able to see it just barely because there is a moon out, and this may uh, be too bright to bring it out uh, without binoculars. But where it's located is this, and I have the celestial sphere set up for tonight. Uh, the comet is over there. That's north. The Big Dipper is over there right now, and in connection with the other stars of Big Dipper, let me draw it here. This is the Big Dipper coming up here. Seven stars in the Big Dipper. And if you take these last two and follow those through, about up here is due north. That's the North Star. Well, Comet Austin, according to the information I just had on the phone, should be visible approximately here. Now, as the night wears on, the Big Dipper is going to go counterclockwise, remember everything goes counterclockwise, around the North Star. And the comet will dip down very low and be lost in the haze of the horizon here. But tomorrow morning before sunrise, as it comes around on the other side, the comet will still be in the same position here, but on the other side of the North Star before sunrise. I'm not sure which way the tail goes here, uh, but he told me on the phone that it does have a significant tail uh, by this time, and that the uh, head of the comet, this solid white part here, is about one-third the diameter of the moon. That's a pretty good size. Now, it's going to stay here, uh, in this region for the next several weeks, and it's going to move in this direction. So as time goes on, by the first part of September, it'll be up here, and will stay up uh, above the horizon longer, and it should be even more visible. Now the fact that uh, it has passed the sun tonight doesn't mean that it's the most visible tonight, because it will, as it goes out, uh, come in a more favorable position so far as the Earth is concerned. In fact, it was already in a position where it was more favorably located for the Earth, uh, but was at that point not visible from the Northern Hemisphere. It was discovered, I think I told you, in New Zealand, where Mr. Austin lives. I've also learned that Mr. Austin is looking forward, since he's a home solar eclipse chaser, to being in Java next summer, so I hope to meet him at that time and discuss comments. But he doesn't have as far to go from New Zealand to Java is a short hop compared to New York to Java. Any questions about Comet Austin? And then we'll go on to the next part this evening. John. Uh, what significance does the tail have on Comet? Uh, I think this may be a good time. I'm glad you mentioned that. If you turn the slide projector on, please, and uh, turn the lights down, we'll talk about that. I knew there was something I'd forgotten, and I'm glad you brought it up. There is a picture of a comet, and it is a classic comet. This is Comet West, which was visible also near 
the Big Dipper in 1976. Now, if you look very closely, and uh, it doesn't have to get totally dark to see this, there are a number of significant things about this picture. Notice the stars are different colors. This is taken with color film. And for one thing, remember what I said last night, that stars do not get bigger through telescopes. This was, I'm not sure this was taken through a telescope and not just with a telephoto lens. Uh, you can get pictures like that with your own camera if you just set it up and keep it steady and keep the lens open for a few minutes in the night sky and take a shot at it. Um, this is not a professional photograph. This was taken by an amateur photographer of Comet West and I think on the back of the slide I have the lens openings and so on to do this kind of thing. Uh, and the type of film and all. Notice the different colors. I told you last night some stars are red, some are blue, some are other colors. Also notice the different sizes of the stars. That does not indicate the size of the star. It indicates the brightness. It means that the light from this star was strong enough that during the time explosion when this was taken, the light accumulated and spread out on the emulsion and so it made the spot bigger. Just like when you look at a bright light, the light looks bigger than a dim light because it's spreading out on your retina. So we can use these sizes of the disks as indications of the brightness of the star, but not the size of the star or the distance. This tells us nothing about distances at all. It just tells us a bright star, and these are others are dimmer. Look how many are on here. There are thousands of stars on here. Now, after you look at them down dim enough, you, pretty soon you get to the grain of the film, and I have to tell you, some of that is no longer stars here, but graininess. We always push the enlargement and developing of a picture in the sky to the limit of graininess. But now let's get back to Mr. Lamontola's question about the tail of a comet. If it's a classical comet like this one here, notice there's a dense front part here, which is called the head of the comet, and it is surrounded by a fuzzy halo. That's called the coma. And the word coma means hairy. If you're in a coma, you will feel kind of hairy. <laughs> So that's the same. And when you use a comb, it's for your hair. You comb with the hair and so on. <laughs> so the word comb and coma and all these others come from the word, the same root word as comet. The reason it's fuzzy around here is because the dirty iceberg, which may be only about a mile across, is evaporating from the sun's radiation. We had scheduled to send a spaceship out to intercept Halley's Comet in 1985, but because of federal budget cuts, it has been eliminated. The Halley Space Shot. Some other countries are still planning to do it, but we're not going to, I understand, unless we do it last minute. But we were going to park something up there and take a piece of that comet home. Not this one, but Halley's. Then as the sun pushes on this, see the sun is down below, toward the floor here. Then this vapor or evaporated material is pushed out and this indicates the orbit of the comet. That's where it was and it's heading in this direction, but it's a combination of orbit and the pressure of the sun. So as the comet comes around near the sun, this is always pointing away, as I mentioned before. Notice you can see the stars shining through it easily. All the way down to here, there's stars shining through. So this is very wispy material. The light here is from two reasons. One, it's reflecting the light from the sun, just like any planet would be. And secondly, it's re-radiating the light like a fluorescent light bulb would be. So the light from a comet is reflected light and fluorescent light. But notice another thing. 
There's a blue tail also. The blue tail going up in this direction is very straight. And we believe that this blue tail is formed by material that has shot out from the sun and is colliding with the comet and pushing it out. That's called the solar wind. So many comets have two tails, a radiation light pressure tail, the curved one, and a blue tail made from interaction with particles from the sun. So what does the tail signify? Well, one thing, it indicates what the comet is made of because we can take a, a spectral photograph of this and we see lines of absorption which shows it's being reflected from, uh, the sunlight's reflected from it, and we see emission lines which are caused by fluorescence. And these materials are very energetic here, and it indicates uh, that there's a collision with solar particles. Many comets, as they go around the sun, as I indicated, uh, lose their tail on the way out again. This part comes off altogether and drifts away into space, and then floats there until something, for instance the Earth, gets close enough to pull the materials in. And then we have a meteor shower, like we had a few weeks ago. So it is believed that when we have a shower of these particles, it's because the Earth has passed through the tail of a comet. Um, that's about all we do know about comet tails. We're not really sure we've got the right answer. We think. We haven't brought any home yet. But notice another thing. Up here is a kind of an interrupted streak of light. The person who took this picture had the good fortune of having his camera open while an artificial satellite tumbles through here. That's a man-made satellite, and the reason it's on and off is because it reflects better on one side than the other. And the sun was still in a position where it shone from the satellite, and we got a picture of, I think it was Echo 3 or whatever was going through there. Can you actually see the satellite? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I forget. Uh, oh, and it's cellophane. So I was standing next to looking at a telescope. He said, oh, hey, look up there. It's a satellite. It takes, uh, and that was about uh, 9 o'clock at night, right about this time. If it gets much later, you won't see them because then the sun is no longer shining up there. But it has to be dark here and bright up there. And if, uh, to tell whether it's an airplane or a satellite, uh, there are two ways. You can tell which direction it's going. Satellites always go a certain direction because they're always launched in a certain direction, uh, northeast, southwest and then the next time around opposite because the Earth is turning under the orbit. And uh, the other way you can tell is by the time it takes to go across the sky. If an object goes across the sky in about a minute and a half, then it's bound to be a satellite. It has red blinking lights, of course, and it's an airplane even if it takes a minute and a half. But of course, the most famous comet of all is this one here, uh, which Halley never saw. Halley predicted it, and he died, and then it came. And it appeared on uh, Christmas Eve of the year he predicted it. It has been appearing for every 75 years since that time, since the 18th century. The last time was in 1910. Uh, the interesting thing is that it appeared 75 years before that. Who can quickly subtract that? Uh, 75 1910. Uh, it appeared the year that Mark Twain was born, and it appeared again the year he died. Uh, rather interesting. But notice how long it's visible in the sky. These pictures were taken in 1910. It, in, in, on April 26th, it had a short tail like this. It got longer. And then, when it got close to the Earth and the Sun, in a sort of intermediate position, 
have to ignore these uh, pieces of dirt on the film here. The tail got very long and it almost looks like smoke going out. The tail changes shape almost hour by hour when you see it that close. It's millions of miles long. Uh, and then here the tail is coming off. Notice these are time exposures and that's why the stars are streaked like this. If you take a picture of a comet and keep up with it for an hour or two, the comet moves enough so that the stars show streaks. Since the stars do not move in the same direction the comet does, you have streaks here. If you keep your camera on the stars, then the stars would be dots and the comet would be a streak. But we want to get a picture of the comet and so the stars are streaked. I can also tell from this photograph that since the streaks are straight like this, this picture was taken near the celestial equator because if it were taken near the north or south pole of the sky, there'd be little arcs instead of straight lines. So the comet uh, went somewhere halfway between the North Star and the South Celestial Pole. And here it's receding from the Sun. The tail has almost disappeared. That plus the fact that it's so far from the Sun now that the reflection is no longer visible. And out here, June 11th, almost the end of the time that it was still visible, there is hardly any kind of tail behind it. So if you go from April 26th to June 11th, you see that the comet is visible in the sky for about six weeks. Now the comet that I spoke about before, Comet Austin, was discovered in June, but remember that was with a telescope. And this is uh, almost with the naked eye here that you could see it April 26th to June 11th, but with telescopes we can see it out a little bit farther. How bright this one will get, we're not real sure yet, Comet Austin, because it has never appeared before, and it uh, depends a little how tough it is, whether the shell breaks more easily. So if we could have the lights again, please. That's, uh, or unless you want to ask a question about this picture. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. Well, comets have always, now speaking specifically about the comets, have always been viewed as omens. We have tapestries uh, that go back thousands of years, Chinese and other tapestries, uh, that included comets because they were always thought to be special messengers for a significant event that is about to occur. For example, uh, tracing back uh, Halley's Comet, uh, Halley's Comet was visible in 1066, and there's a tapestry in England that shows the invasion uh, of England at that time, and actually the people who conquered England felt it was a good omen to see the comet, and also got defeated so it was an evil omen. It is certainly true that when people see comets, they get more excited than almost any other object because it's so unusual looking. And they get more philosophical at that time and introspective and think about life's purpose and passage of time and so on. And I firmly believe, and certainly scriptures record this also, that there shall be signs in the heavens. And definitely a comet is a sign in the heavens. The Bible also talks about eclipses. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It says the sun will go dark at noon and the moon will get red as blood. Those are two eclipses. This last close, the moon got red, not quite like blood where I saw it, but at least it was reddish. And there was darkness at noon in Siberia last summer. So comets and eclipses certainly are only. And I think anything that helps people think of whether they're living their life properly is a pretty good thing. And if, that, if you look at the comet later tonight and see it, and think about your purpose in life, that's a real good 
side effect of the stomach. I don't know, I'm not answering your question specifically, but with comets, uh, people always feel funny when they see a comet. Yeah, those things will get well, we have a good viewing night tonight, I think. Uh, I hope it endures long enough afterwards that people can enjoy this if you get to a place where there are fewer lights than here. And we're working on this journey to get certain times of the year and times of the week where we can dim the light sufficiently so we can appreciate it. Actually, the stars may not really uh, show themselves. <laughs> well, the same question came up last night after the lecture was over, and if there's time uh, later, I'd like to talk about the difference and distinction between astronomy and astrology. This last thing you asked about is called astrology. The uh, question of whether the objects in the sky not only have a meaning in our lives, but whether they direct what happens to us. That's called astrology. There is some animosity between those two fields. An astronomer does not believe that there is any influence on people's lives by the stars. I have had debates that lasted the entire day. I was invited once to debate an astrologer for an entire day, and people were invited in and admission was charged with this hall and so on, but when I walked in, I realized that 99% of the people sitting there were astrologers, and that I was in a rather lonesome position, but that's another story. I don't believe that, no, that they direct our lives. I have all I can do to figure out where the stars are, much less figure out if they're directing my life. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Mr. Fix first. Uh, I think that what we should do is if we do this, we're going to have a question. Okay. All right. So if you bring the lights up again, please, and uh, turn that into the fan. Okay. So let's get into the topic of how far away are the stars, or as I like to uh, introduce it with a little song, "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star." How I wonder where you are. Last night we talked a little about what you are. You're red, you're blue, and hot, and cool, and big, and small. But the thing that concerns us mostly this evening is how far away are you, O little star? And it may come as a surprise to you to know that we have not been able to measure the distance to stars very long. A hundred years ago, this whole lecture would have been very iffy. It's iffy enough the way it is. But the first determination of the distance to a star goes back only a little over 100 years. Now, that may come as a surprise. We just didn't know. Now, to take a little of the amazement away, let me ask you a question. If a light turns on out in the ocean there somewhere, what would you do without going there to figure out how far away it is? Is it a bright light? Is it a dim light? Is it far away? Is it nearby? How would you tell? I, I was thinking about that last night. <laughs> That's um, wonderful. It seems to me if I had a boat, and I had, the, and I knew something about trigonometry, which I don't, and I, I had a second 
would measure the angle between the star and me at this point, and then I would travel off in some direction, and then do the same thing over there, and then it seems to me I should be able to figure out the distance. You think that up just thinking, or did you peek in a book? No, I didn't. I was thinking about it last night. All I, right. I don't really know any trigonometry, but that's the way All I right. do it. Well, anyone who has dabbled in surveying knows, of course, that if you want to know how wide a river is without going across the river, you have to look at something on the other side, like a tree, from one position, and then go down the bank and look at it again and see what the angle is between the two. Okay. That's not the whole answer. That's the first answer. And that's called parallax. We better get this thing dry first or we won't have anything else. What you were describing, sir, is called parallax. And the best way, while this is drying off, to demonstrate it is to take your finger and hold it out in front of you. Everybody do it. This looks very silly, but try it. <laughs> now hold it so that the finger's in front of this light here. Now close your left eye. Now remember where the finger is. Don't move your finger. Now look at it with the other eye. Close the right eye, open the left eye. What did the finger do? Did it really move? Ah, it seemed to move. It seemed to move. Why did it seem to move? Because you were looking at it from a different direction, right? That's called parallax. Do another thing now. Hold the finger up again. Link your eyes back and forth and watch how it moves. Now bring your finger closer and do it again, closer to your face. What does it do? It moves more. In other words, the first law of parallax is that the closer an object is to your eyes, the greater is the parallax. The movement is called parallax. Now what do you need to have parallax? You need to have two different <laughs> viewing positions, your two eyeballs. You need to have a background, like the screen up here. And that's all. Now all you have to do is to measure how far it jumps with a ruler or anything, any convenient device, and measure how far it is between your eyes. And you can make an equation that will now tell you how far from your eyes your finger is. Now we're going to do this with the stars. The first measurement of the distance to a star was made in exactly this way. What do we need? We need two positions from which to view the stars. Well, what are the two widest apart positions that you can get on this Earth? Some people say two poles, but think again. Look at the picture. two points in the Earth's orbit. You see where it says X and Y here? Let's say this is January and this is three months later. Why don't we do it way over here? Sun's in the way. Excellent. Can't see the stars, except at night. So we pick two points three months apart. How far do you suppose it is from here to here? Well, somebody has to figure that out too, right? 
Well, we didn't know the distance to the sun. Remember, I, Kepler didn't know. He just knew the ratios. He didn't know the real numbers. But we've measured that things in various ways, including radar. We've shot a radar beam up to the sun, bounced off, and came back. It's the same thing we do to the moon. Shoot a light beam with lasers now. Shoot to the moon, bounce it off a mirror that the astronauts place there, and it bounces back, and we can tell. It takes two and a half seconds from the time we leave here until it comes back. Therefore, the moon is 247,000 miles away. Easy. But you can't shoot radar to a star. It won't come back. It gets lost. It's too far away. So we know that from the Earth to the sun is about 93 million miles. That's a long way. Well, if it's 93 million from here to here, then from here to here must be like 100 million miles. So now instead of having just a few inches between your eyeballs for this trick, now you've got 100 million miles here. Now you look at the star A, and there's another one out here, B. Now we know that the one is farther away than the other one. Because when we look at this star A from point X and look at it again from point Y, star A jumps, but B does not. B is very far away and therefore doesn't move at all, just like the screen did with your fingers. Down here is an illustration of how they jump. You take a picture from point X, and B and A are practically behind each other. But you take another picture from point Y, and B and A are now separated from each other. That's the parallax. Use the same equation as with your fingers, and you come up with the distance from the Earth to this star. That was done in about 1830 for the first time. Now, why did it take so long? Get ready for this. How far did your finger jump on the screen? Well, maybe this much, right? How far do you suppose this star jumps from A to B for the nearest star from the Earth, not counting the sun? This far? It jumped less than one three thousand six hundredth of one degree. You know what a degree is? So 360 in a circle. One degree is very tiny. The biggest jump of any star in space by parallax is one less than one 3,600 of a degree. Less than a second of arc. That's why it took till 18 something to measure because nobody could measure it before. And that's why some people didn't believe the Copernican theory. They said if Copernicus is right, we should be able to see the stars jump back and forth as the Earth goes around the sun. And since they couldn't measure it, they said it's not true. And not until 1800-something was it really proved, 200, 300 years after Copernicus, when the first parallax was measured. Now, that's been measured, and here it's much more than second of arc. That's been measured over and over. And what is this actual distance in miles here? It's 25 trillion miles to the nearest star. It is so far away that it takes the light from that star over four years to get here. If that star would go out, you can't see the star from journeys here. You have to go down to Florida to see it. It's Alpha Centauri. 
if it would go off tonight, you wouldn't know it for four years. Because the light would keep coming from the star that went dead. That's the nearest star. Now there are in our galaxy alone a hundred billion stars, all of which are farther away than this next door neighbor. This is so difficult to measure that the parallax for stars has only been measured for a few hundred stars. What about the other 99 billion and whatever is left? That was totally unknown. We knew the distance only to a few hundred stars, and we only knew that the rest were farther away. Until along came a very brilliant, I don't know whether to call her an amateur or a professional, but her name is Henrietta Leavitt, and we owe her a great debt. Henrietta Leavitt, some people say, leave it, but you can either leave it or leave it. There was a hand up over here. Henrietta Leavitt, working, I believe, at Harvard Observatory as an assistant in their astronomy department, was given the assignment of measuring variable stars. Now, what is a variable star? A variable star is one that changes its light from hour to hour or from day to day. Many, many stars are variable. There are certain ones that are so variable that you can tell with the naked eye that tomorrow night they're brighter than they are tonight. And they all have a very definite light curve. And if we draw the light curve of a variable star, it looks something like this. And this may be a matter here of days, one day, three, four, five, and so on. And this is the brightness here. Remember I said that's magnitude. Bright is a small number. Zero, one, two, as you get down, bigger numbers, it gets dimmer. So this particular star will vary from a magnitude of about three and a half to a brightness of about one or one and a half. That's a very large change in a matter of a few days. The first one of these stars to be discovered was in the constellation Cepheus, near the Big Dipper, and therefore they have all, after that, been called Cepheus. So a Cepheid variable is a star that gets brighter and dimmer over a period of a few days. Now what does that have to do with the distance? Nobody knew, but Henrietta Leavitt figured it out. Henrietta Leavitt made graphs like this, light curves of thousands of variable stars. And after she looked at them for a long period of time, she came to the conclusion by looking at these stars as far as brightness and distance and that were known were concerned, that the amount of time it takes a star to vary its light is a direct function of its mass. That means the size of the star determines how fast it varies. Now that's entirely understandable if you think, for example, of an object going up and down on a spring. If the object is very light, It'll go up and down in the spring very fast. If it's heavy, it'll go slower. And the same thing is happening here. This star is breathing. There is pressure from the inside pushing it out. At a certain distance, gravity takes over and pulls it back in again. Breathe. In and out. It gets bigger, it gets smaller. When the star is bigger, it's brighter. When it's smaller, it's dimmer. 
What she was now able to do is to make a graph in which a straight line could be established between the actual brightness of the star and its variability. In other words, if this is how many days it takes to vary, this is a matter of actual brightness and not just relative, because this is really the mass of the star and not just its luminosity. And this is the variability. Henrietta Leavitt is responsible for the mass luminosity law, which is the only way we have of telling the distance to a star if we cannot measure its parallax. Is she right? It's the best thing we have going. Therefore, whenever we see a star that we want to measure the distance to, we see if we can tell whether it's varying or not. And if it is, we apply the mass luminosity graph to it, which gives us its mass and actual brightness. We look at how bright it seems to be. And of course, if you know out there in the water that a, a certain light has an actual brightness of so many candle power, and then you see how bright it seems to be, you can tell how far away it is. Because there's an inverse square law that the farther away you go with the light, the dimmer it gets. Well, if you know how dim it seems to be, and if you know how dim it actually is from its variability, then you can establish the distance to the star. Now we have extended all of a sudden with Henrietta Leavitt's law a yardstick for measuring the distances to millions and billions of stars that could not be measured before. Now, I want to go from there to questions of how big the universe is and what's happening to it. Remember, this is the only yardstick we have. Parallax for a few nearby ones and the Henrietta Leavitt law for any system that has a variable star. By using this yardstick, we have been able to determine that our part of the universe, and that means the, the objects that we see, and I'd like to show you some of those on the other machine again right now. What is it that we're looking at out there in the first place? As soon as we see an object there, we want to see whether we can find something that varies. While this slide is up, I want to uh, explain it because we won't have time to come back to it later. If an object is too far away to use the Henrietta Leavitt law, then we assume that the object is in relation to its apparent size as far as distance is concerned. If it looks small, it's very far away. If it looks bigger, it's closer by. Now, another thing that is happening with the objects when they get farther away that we'll talk about a little bit later on is that the spectral lines in it are in the same proportion as their size. In other words, this object has two dark lines that have moved over this far or are located in this position here. And for a little bigger object, they're not quite as far over. For one that's closer by, still not as far and so on. I'll come back to this a little bit later 
because this is really beyond our galaxy. These are other groups of stars beyond our own. But I want to show you objects first inside our system of stars. You take our Celestron telescope and look in the right place and you see this beautiful formation called Pleiades. The Pleiades are a winter constellation of bright stars that have gas around them and then there are a whole lot of other stars nearby. By the way, the Japanese name, the word for Pleiades is Subaru. And that's why in the back of a Subaru car there are six stars on the hood ornament. Because it's Japanese for Pleiades. Pleiades isn't exactly English either. This is a star that's gas around it. How far away is this star? Well, if we can find its parallax, then we can find the mileage. If not, we see if any of these are varying and use the Levitt law, and we can tell that the Pleiades are perhaps one or two hundred light years away. Don't pay any attention to these. that is held up uh, by cross pieces, it makes this pattern. Stars do not have those streaks going out. They only show up in photographs taken with a telescope that has a mount of this shape. If you can get by without it, it won't have that shape. That's in the constellation Orion. What is it? There are stars and there is a gas here. How do we know these are not stars? The only way we can tell is to take the spectrum of it and see whether it has dark lines in it or whether it has bright lines in it. If it's bright lines, it's a gas, like a neon tube, like I mentioned last night. If it has dark lines of absorption in it, then it's a star. So these objects show dark lines. This shows bright lines. This is fluorescent, just like a fluorescent tube in your house. And it's fluorescing in different colors. Why is it doing that? There's a star in here somewhere, like this one, or this one, that is exciting this material just like a comet tail. The heat and energy of the star is absorbed by the gas and then it is re-radiated out. This is an, and these gases of cloud, by the way, are, are called after the German word for, for fog, a nebula. A nebula is a fog in German, and a nebula is a foggy, gassy material in the sky. This foggy, gassy material here has developed in the last few hundred years. We have records of the time when it first appeared. The gas came, all of it, from this little star in the center. Well, a little on here, but actually it was a giant star that exploded. And the material that's going out here is the shell of the star traveling through space at tremendous rates. I don't know the exact distance of this one from the variable stars we can tell around there. And it's called the Crab Nebula because it looks like a crab. It's the shape of a crayfish. That looks like a what? Looks like a horse's head and that's why it's called the Horse Head Nebula. It's actually turned 90 degrees from the way you see it in the sky. This is in the constellation Orion. Notice we have two kinds of gas here. Here it's bright and here it's dark. Now how do we know there's a dark gas here? Because there are a lot of stars up here and it doesn't make any sense that they all of a sudden should quit at the same place where the gas gets dark. Also, we can detect radiations from behind this gas from more stars. Now why is this dark here? Because there's not enough radiation from a star nearby 
to light it up. So this is a fluorescent gas that hasn't been illuminated. Now we're looking at some of the densest parts of the sky, of our formation of stars. This is called the North American Nebula, and I have it backwards, otherwise you would see that this is Florida over here, and this is Mexico going down to Central America here. It's called the North American Nebula. How many stars do we have in this picture? Quite a few. We are here looking toward the center of our Milky Way in the constellation Sagittarius. This is one I saw the other night at Stellafane through a 20-inch Dobsonian telescope. You can see this uh, without taking a photograph. It's not as vivid as this, but what do you suppose this is from? Well, we think it's the same thing as the one you looked at before, where I said it had exploded and is moving outward. This is the shell of an exploded star that is moving through space in the constellation Cygnus. This is visible right now, straight overhead, and with a good telescope, you can see the stars as dense as this. This is an actual color photograph. There's no color or computer enhancement. That is how it really photographs. In a, in a film, it's more vivid than if you look at it. I had to use a little imagination when I looked, and the fellow told me, you're looking at the Veil Nebula to imagine that this stuff is reddish. But remember, at night, your eyes are not as color sensitive as they are in the daytime. Well, this is not an actual photograph in light waves. It's a photograph in radio waves. This is a color-enhanced, computerized picture of what you get when you look at something like the Crab Nebula with a radio antenna, with one of these big dishes. And the different colors are for different frequencies. So if we can get this to coincide with a visual image through an optical telescope, then we can begin to make some headway on how far away this source is. So I wanted to put these in here to show what kind of objects we're talking about when we try to get an image of the universe. So if we can have the lights again, please, we'll get back to that picture in just a moment. Now, from taking the methods that I explained of parallax and of variable stars, we now believe that our system of stars look something like a flying saucer. This is a more or less accurate sketch of the Milky Way. The center part is very dense. It's so bright in here that you can't look through it. That's the part we were looking toward with the Veil Nebula. Out here, things are more full of gas, and the stars are not quite as thick here. Now, where is the sun located? We think that the sun is about out here in the suburbs, approximately that position. If the sun were in the center of this thing, it wouldn't get dark at night. But we're out here, and when we look in this direction, we see the Milky Way, the summer Milky Way, which is very thick. If we look in this direction, we see the winter Milky Way, which is less dense. And when we look out this way, we're looking at the rest of the sky, and we only see the stars in this part of the arms here. Now, how big is this thing? By using the variable star method, we have discovered that from one end to the other is about 80,000 light years. So that it takes about 80,000 years for light to get from this end to the other. 
The diameter in this direction is about one-tenth as great, about 8,000 light years. Now, around the outside here is a halo of very densely compacted clusters of stars. Why, we don't really know. But here's a cluster, maybe 100,000 stars, that is about 30,000 light years out. An entire collection of what we think are older stars. The ones near the sun are younger, and here they're older, and somehow the graveyard of stars seems to be the clusters out here. Now, until the 1920s, we thought this was the entire universe. 80,000 light years across, about 8,000 through here, with a 30,000 light year halo of clusters. But then along came a picture that made big news. And that was that we found out that there are other Milky Ways out there, and that the universe is more than just one of these. Now, what did that next one look like? Well, I'll show it to you in two pictures, because one of them shows what it actually looks like, and the other one, how we study it. If you take a color photograph with a good telescope, and the celestron here will show you this even with the naked eye, it looks something like this. Now, notice how many stars there are all around there. These stars, the little ones here, are in our Milky Way. We're looking through the narrow part, as I said before, with a good telescope with which we can see literally thousands of stars in this direction. But then we come to a gaseous object here that for a long time was thought to be a nebula. And it was indeed called the Andromeda Nebula because it's in the constellation Andromeda. And then with the 100-inch telescope in California, someone found that there were stars out here in the arms of this thing that varied, that it was not really a cloud of gas, but that it was actually made of millions and billions of stars. And using the Levitt formula, it was found that this formation was well over one million light years away. Now, if our galaxy is only 80,000 light years, obviously, this is another one. This was the first formation of stars beyond the Milky Way to be identified as another galaxy. And it is now renamed the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, let me show you what it looks like if we use another method. Notice how much easier it is to identify stars when they are black on white instead of white on black. And so very often astronomers will use the negative instead of the positive in order to count stars. There's another advantage to that, and that is that the negative is clearer. When you make a positive print, you lose some of the distinctness. Now we can begin to see the difference between the stars in the arm of this galaxy, the tiny points here, and these bigger ones out here that belong to our galaxy. The positive proof, of course, is to find a variable star out here and note that it's within the 80,000 light year diameter of our formation, and then look for a very tiny one here and find its period of variability and apparent brightness and discover that it's one or maybe even one and a half to two million light years away. 
Well, when that was discovered, somebody said, we've got to get a bigger and bigger telescope and find out how many galaxies there really are. And the man who put it the bill for that was Rockefeller, Governor Rockefeller's grandfather. Dr. Hale wrote a letter to him and said, we need the world's biggest telescope to see how many galaxies really are there. And he said, well, here's $6 million. See what you can build with it. So they built a 200-inch telescope, which went into operation in 1948, and found billions of galaxies, not just a few more. And the question then arose is, what shape is all that? And does it go on forever? Well, the first thing that you can do with galaxies is to classify them. And these are not actual photos, but we don't have time to look at a great many of the billions of them. We can classify them by shape. If they have a shape like ours, and you see it edge on, it looks like this. You see it face on, it looks like that. What does that seem to be doing? Whirling, exactly. Just like a comet loses its tail, so here these arms seem to be coming off. And if it's any comfort, or maybe it's not comfort, rather something you worry about, the arm in which the sun is located will come off. And we'll go floating away by ourselves wherever that happens to be. Whether that makes any difference, we're not really sure. Or some don't have any arms. They're just called ellipticals. Some have a center that's elongated like this. But the most important thing, and this is what I want to close this part of the discussion with, is that shortly after the Mount Palomar telescope went into operation, the man in charge of it, Dr. Hubble, found, and the picture I showed you earlier with the lines moved over and the size of the galaxies, found a relationship between the size of the galaxy and how far those two dark lines were moved toward the right side of the spectrum. This is called the red shift. And it's the most important discovery in astronomy in the last several decades. The red shift means, if it's true, that the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving. Because the shift of those two dark lines, Hubble says, is produced by the motion of the galaxy. Just like when you're standing at a railroad crossing and a train goes by, the sound of the whistle on the train seems to change pitch. Or if you're in the train and you go by the crossing and hear the bell at the crossing, the sound of the bell seems to change pitch. It goes ding, 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 ding. This shift in the pitch is not the bell, it's your motion. Or if you listen to a race at Indianapolis and you're not watching the cars and you just hear it, you can hear the sound of the engine change pitch. And the faster the car is going, the faster the pitch of the engine seems to change. If a car goes past you, it's going faster than if a car goes past you, it goes, it's only changing a half a note. I don't sing too well in that pitch. But the faster the change in pitch, the faster the car is moving. You don't have to see the car. You can hear the speed. You don't have to see the motion of these galaxies. You can see the speed on its spectrum. Now, what does that mean if the faster they're going, the farther away they are? Well, naturally, if you back them all up, and the far away ones are going fast, and the close by ones are going slower, the whole thing may have started originally in one compact mass. That's called the Big Bang. <laughs> 
theory. The Big Bang theory is one of only two things we really think are true in the study of the size of the universe. And that's why I can end this discussion very quickly now, because we only know two things. <laughs> we think we know one other one, but we're not really sure. What do we know? We know, maybe, the red shift. The red shift means that the farther away an object is from us, the faster it's going away. Now, how far away are some of these objects? By using the estimate of distance and size that I showed you, we can't find the variable stars anymore. We're talking about distances now that are about 15 billion light years. And that estimate is obtained from the red shift. How fast is it moving, judging from how the lines are shifted, or like the car engine, how fast it's moving when you listen to it, so the distance by which the spectral lines are displaced tell us that the farthest away is about that far. And the second thing we know, and this is even more important than the first one, how do we know, for instance, that the universe hasn't always been like this, just rushing apart? How do we know it began with the Big Bang? From the second fact, and that's called the background radiation. A few years ago, two scientists at the Bell Laboratory were studying static with great big antennas. How to eliminate static. And no matter, and they used a really big telescope, it was like 15, uh, 20 yards across. No matter how carefully they assembled that telescope and checked the welds and cleaned the pigeon contributions out of it and everything else. In fact, they found whether they left the pigeon stuff in there or took it out, the results were the same, which is an interesting conclusion what the universe is made of. But anyway, no matter how carefully they did this work, they always heard a static. Where was that static coming from? No matter in which direction they aimed the telescope, they heard static. When they went back to check to see what temperature this static represented, it came out to be three degrees above zero absolute. K is for absolute, K is Kelvin. In other words, the entire universe, no matter which way you point it, seems to be at a temperature of three degrees above absolute zero. Absolute zero is about 460 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Why? Well, mathematicians got busy on the problem and found out that if the universe were 20 billion years old and would have cooled off and expanded at the rate it's now expanding, the temperature should be 3 degrees at the present time. So the conclusion is that what we're measuring when we look at that 3 degree static is the left over temperature of the Big Bang of the original explosion of creation. Now, if we back the whole thing up, we should be able to tell where creation began. But that, as the question was last night, has a very strange answer. The answer is the explosion occurred over the entire universe at the same time. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't get the same temperature in all directions. The universe, and this is the third thing we know, and the last thing I can talk about that we don't know anymore, is that the universe is homogeneous. That means if we take the little lumps out, like the Milky Way, and these other lumps of galaxies, taken as a whole, the universe looks about the same all over and in any direction. That means it's homogeneous and isotropic. These are the only three things that astronomers who study the extent of the universe are willing to say for sure. Now, what we're left with is a great big question, and that is, what do we think on the basis of these three things will happen to the universe in the future? Well, there are only two possibilities. Either it's going to keep expanding forever, in which case it's called an open universe, or it's going to stop and come back again. Now, I told you a variable star goes out and then gravity takes over and comes in again. That will determine whether it's open or closed. How far out will it go? So far until gravity starts pulling it in again, and then it'll all get back in a bunch and explode all over, or else just destroy itself. Now, how much material is necessary for that to happen? According to cosmologists, and the latest paper I heard on that was last month, the mass of the universe is not nearly great enough to make the closed universe take place. The mass of the galaxies and all the stars put together is short by a factor of five or ten to make the universe contract again and start over. Most astronomers, therefore, go with the open universe. It will expand forever, and the universe will disappear in a kind of a whimper and not a great big bang. Now, that means the entire universe, not our part. There are other things that can happen to that first that can blow it up and everything else. But the universe as a whole will, according to present knowledge, keep expanding, unless there's a lot of mass out there that we haven't discovered yet. Maybe there are things out there that we haven't seen yet. I remember Dr. Hubert Elliot at Princeton telling me one time, whenever he starts his classes, he tells the students that the entire universe is made of matter, energy, and blurt. Then he stops, and somebody will finally wake up and say, Professor, I never heard of blurts before. What are blurts? And he says, ah, blurts haven't been discovered yet. And someday, when they discover blurts, You'll say, good old Doc Elliot predicted flirt. <laughs> That's as far as I can go on the extended universe. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, if you want to bring the lights up a little bit, please, there may be some questions. I said there would be one other very brief thing after that period, and that is next year's expedition to Java, but I want to make sure we answer the questions that arise first.
Yes, sir. One thing you said, I didn't understand. Uh, you said if you trace back the direction of these stars back to its center, there is no center. That's homogeneous. I didn't really understand what Well, what it means is that there is no way at the present time of determining where this original explosion could have originated because no matter where we look, the temperature that's left over from it is the same. Whereas if it would have come from a certain direction, we would see, obviously, more heat coming from that direction than out in the opposite direction. Because if, if there's heat coming from a stove, naturally, if you face the stove, it's hotter. But since that's not the case, we're faced with the unusual interpretation that the explosion kind of took place all over at the same time, which is another way of saying that before the explosion took place, there was no such thing as time or space or matter or energy. It all began, and the question is, where did that come from, which is not a scientific question. God only knows. Well, the, the best uh, illustration of it is to say the universe is like a balloon. If you take a balloon and put stars all around the balloon and then blow into the balloon, all the stars on the outside of the balloon will be going away from all the other stars as the balloon expands. But the expansion really has no center among those stars. There is no place on that balloon that is any more a center than any other place. Now, in addition to that two-dimensional balloon blowing up, you have to imagine a whole series of balloons inside each other, each one of which is expanding at a different rate. The bigger the balloon, the faster you're blowing it up. When it's inside farther, it's going slower, so that the distance is increasing between the, balloon, the stars laterally and radially. And still, there is no place in that whole nest of balloons that is a center any more than any other place in that whole situation. Then you get an approximate center. Well, any place is the center from which you look. Any place you look is rushing away from every other place. It's like being, uh, I've heard cosmologists describe it as a, uh, a group of people in a field and at a signal, at a, uh, a, a gun going off, for example, they all rush outward, radially outward. Any person rushing out can really consider himself as the center of the picture because you'll say, ah, everybody's going away from me. And if furthermore you say that the farther you are, the faster you're going, then even if you look behind you, you're gaining on the person so he looks like he's going away from you backwards. So there is no back, front, or sideways anymore. That's what is meant by no center of the Big Bang. The original mass is known as the cosmic egg. For a long time, there was an argument of whether the cosmic egg was hot or cold. Was the explosion hot or cold? Well, the discovery of the radio background by Penzias and Wilson and Princeton, both of whom got the Nobel Prize for finding this, has eliminated the possibility that it was a cold explosion. It has also eliminated the possibility that the universe is eternal. Cosmologists today do not believe any longer in what used to be called the steady state theory, and that is that the universe was always there 
and that therefore we don't have to worry about when it was created. That is no longer believed. The three things I wrote down that we know prove that the universe had a beginning and therefore had to be created. Because it certainly didn't get there by itself. I've never heard anyone say that. Yes, sir. I did. Yes. Just like planets. Well, where did they come from is another question. The best theory of that is the one proposed by a Danish or a Dutch astronomer, rather, by the name of Oort. I just talked to a student of his in Peoria a few weeks ago. Oort had proposed that the entire solar system is surrounded by millions of comets, which is called Oort clouds. And very humble. Now, when the sun is in the middle here, and the planets are like this, and Oort cloud is out here, there are just millions of these little dirty icebergs out here. And when the configuration of planets is such that the gravity is sufficient to pull one of these in, it then assumes an orbit. And since it's coming in from so far out, the orbit will be very elliptical. And in most cases, it will take several thousand years. Now, if it comes in and Jupiter is here and begins to pull on it, then it can do a thing like this, and it goes back and forth around Jupiter and the sun, and that takes only about three years. So they're out here to start with, and the reason they have such interest is, if they've been out here for so long, if we capture one and bring it in, we can then get some idea of what the solar system was like when it was created. Because nothing on Earth is like it was at creation anymore. It's all been covered up. The moon is closer because it hasn't been eroded as badly. But if we could capture a comet, we could get a real clue on the material of creation for the solar system. How did they figure out that Well, uh, it was, as I mentioned last night, he worked with Newton, and the two together uh, worked on the, uh, well, let me back up a little farther. Even before he went to Newton, Halley said that in studying history, he finds that every 75 years, a bright comet is reported somewhere. And it makes sense to him, and he was the first person to say that comets come back. All the people before that said a comet is a one-time visitor. Halley said, every 75 years, there seems to be a very bright comet. I think it's the same one. And I therefore predict that it will come back in a certain year, and it did. And it has every 75 years since, but it won't forever, because if it keeps losing its tail, it's like a bar of soap, it'll get washed off. And then it it actually, it isn't that the tail is invisible to it. The tail actually is lost. No, the tail is lost, that's correct. Way out, it doesn't have enough radiation pressure to have a tail anymore. And there are comets that have not come back. They've been washed up. They've just left their debris lying around. You see, when we're all done, the whole comet might only weigh a few pounds. But it may be millions of miles long. Yes? Will well, there star always be That's a very good question. The, uh, the question was, uh, does a variable star ever change its variability? Remember, were you here last time when I talked about pulsars? 
There are some stars that give out radio signals that change. They must obviously be variable radio stars. We do know that they change and they eventually will die and become black holes or what have you. But I'm not aware of a uh, variable star of the optical type changing its period. Now, I may be wrong. Uh, I'd like to ask some people about that. I watched a person last week give a presentation on variable stars in which he said we can now measure the variability so accurately that many stars that we thought were steady are not really steady. With light meters, instead of just by looking at the star, we now aim light meters at a photometer. Uh, and there's an association you can join. It's the International Association of Professional, uh, International Amateur Professional Photometric Photography. And these guys measure the light output of stars down to the thousands of a magnitude. Not just 1 to 3 to 5, but 1.002. Yes, sir. Okay, so final question uh, about the universe. My understanding is that as of a couple of years ago, the universe was expanding, but it's expanding at a much slower rate. In fact, decelerating. The question is whether when you go out far enough, are the way out objects that we're now studying going a little bit slower than they should, which would be a clue that the universe seems to be slowing down out there and may stop and come back. The, I was just reading an article on it today to make sure that I have my finger on what astronomers are now saying, and the answer is that the observation of the galaxies at that distance are so uncertain that we cannot say whether they're slowing down. We simply have to get the space telescope out there to take a better look. The evidence is very inconclusive, and unless it becomes more certain, we have to stay with the forever expanding open universe. If the curve should suddenly stop, or if we find that the laws of gravity are different out there, that's another big if, you know. Why should the laws of physics be the same all over the universe as they are right here? It's rather egotistical. Maybe they change. Maybe. 15 billion years ago, the law of gravity was not quite the same as when Newton said uh, it was Tm1 and 2 over d squared. It may be different. It may be changing. Maybe the whole thing is an illusion in the first place. There are people who say that those distances are illusory. Dr. Morrison last week at Cellophane said that there are certain motions and displacements of the spectral line that are not real. They only seem to be where they are. Well, if you introduce that concept, then you can do that with any observation in space and say, well, maybe it only seems to be there. Maybe we're hallucinating, or maybe the light when it comes here gets tired. I mean, we get tired after 10 billion years traveling through space, maybe it would deviate a little bit from a straight line. Then, of course, anything is possible. See, we have to establish certain things and say, well, let's rely on these facts. And the ones I put on, the first two, we're now relying on. If they turn out not to be true, then we're back at square one. Yes? That's a very intriguing question. Will we see other planets? The best, and I read the Sky and Telescope this month, the best we can hope for 
with the space telescope is to see whether certain stars are wiggling as though they had planets. Yes, uh, Van de Kamp at uh, Sproul Observatory and others have studied wiggling stars, the same two wiggling stars for like 30 years, <laughs> to see what unseen planet is nearby to make it wiggle the way it does. But if with the space telescope we find that there are literally hundreds of stars that have uh, irregularities like this, then the idea of a planetary system becomes more definite. So far, the evidence is very inconclusive. We do not know definitely that there is a planet around any other star, much less to predict whether uh, the planet would have the conditions for life. Now, if there are no more questions, I want to quickly, uh, in a minute or two, draw a picture of what an eclipse is and why next June is so important. An eclipse occurs when three objects in the sky get in each other's way or line up in the same straight line. When that happens, we give it a very interesting name, which astronomers like to use, and that is a G. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. -Y. You want to get into any observatory, just knock the door, and say syzygy, and they say, wow, you really know yourself. <laughs> a syzygy is a lineup of three objects. The three of them are standing there over in syzygy. Well, the syzygy I'm interested in now, however, is one in which the sun is here, and the moon is here, and then when you draw a line from the outside of the sun to the outside of the moon, there's a shadow behind here. This is called the umbra. It's like umbrella. It's dark. That's the umbra. If you're in the umbra, which is a cone-shaped thing, not two-dimensional, you won't see the sun. This umbra moves around space. How come you can't see that cone-shaped darkness out there? Well, the whole business is dark, right? How can you see black against black? You don't see it. But now supposing the Earth gets in the way of this umbra, now, if you're on the Earth at the place where the umbra hits it, you'll see a total eclipse of the sun. Now, notice how small that is here. The widest that this space can get here, at least except for the poles up and down here, is about 200 miles wide. And to see the sun totally eclipsed, you have to get into that path. Now, that path can be predicted accurately with computers today for several centuries in advance. Last summer, this path went through Siberia. And we watched the eclipse there from Bratz, and it took about two minutes. Now, why is it so short? It's so short because the moon is moving and takes that umbra with it, and it's moving so that the shadow moves across the Earth at over 1,000 miles an hour. So if it's about 200 miles wide and moves 1,000 miles an hour, you can figure out it takes about two minutes or so to get past the spot where you stand. Or you can get in a fast airplane and follow it. But if you do, the airplane is kind of rough and you'll be bouncing around, you won't see it very well. Also, I remember one case where they spent a million dollars fixing the airplane up and they traveled along with the eclipse, but they had the hole for the camera on the wrong side of the plane. <laughs> and they didn't see it, but, well, that was the airport. Now, next summer, 
But this path will pass through Java and Bali and New Guinea. Now, you can see that on either side of the Umbra is another region. If you're in here on the Earth, you will see the sun partially eclipsed. And that's a much larger area. It doesn't cover the whole Earth, but it's much larger. And that has passed through here a number of times. But the last total solar eclipse visible in New York was in 1925. There will not be another one in New York until well into the next century. This umbra business occurs about every 15 months. It does not happen this year at all. There are eclipses this year, but the Earth is too far away. The Earth is over here somewhere so that the umbra misses it and you see the sun partially eclipsed. But the next total one, 1983, there's another one in November 1984, and so on, and finally in about 2024, right here, you see it pretty well. I think that number is correct uh, for the next one in New York. You notice it takes quite a while to get back to the same place. It's not haphazard. It's not that this path goes wherever it wants to. There are definite patterns that it follows. And what we have done is to reserve 40 spaces in uh, Surabaya, Java. Java is a place of some 60 million people. And it's also, since it's a new moon at that time, uh, a religious festival of Ramadan among the uh, people in Java. And we'll be caught among who knows how many pilgrimages and what all. But we hope for the best. And this will be our ninth expedition to our own solar eclipse. And we've been rained out only once. And the Lord willing, we'll see this one also. It's a much longer one than the last one in Siberia. It will be over five minutes long. The longest that it can possibly be is about seven and a half minutes. And if you want to plan on one that's nearby, that will last over seven minutes in 1991, get down to Mexico City. Along with a few million other people, it will be total in Mexico City. It will last over seven minutes. It's dark. Now, the longer it lasts, the darker it gets because the shadow is bigger. In Siberia, it got dark, but you could still see red around the horizon. We saw the planets at noon, but not the bright stars. In other eclipses, one in Mexico in 1970, we saw Venus and Mercury and the bright stars. If you cover your eyes ahead of time so your eye gets dark adapted, you'll see more than other people do. Because seven minutes is long enough, you go in the theater, it takes more like 15 minutes. So what Margaret did, I said that works. She covered one eye ahead of time so she could see the whole thing happening and getting darker with one eye. And as soon as it got home, she looked at this eye and saw more than other people did. Mm -hmm. So, or you can take a camera and take pictures and expose it longer and you'll get a, a better impression. It's a very dramatic thing. Uh, it's impossible to show with slides, or uh, if you've been here during the lectures I've given on eclipses and played the recordings of people's emotions, uh, they do strange things. It's not just the animals that do strange things for the eclipses, it's people do strange things. They say strange things, they scream strange things, and everything. I know of no other thing that I've ever experienced that makes me feel more dependent more dependent on a power beyond myself than a total solar eclipse. You usually think you're in control, you know. You can handle this, you can handle that. You look up there and the sun goes black. Nobody argues they're in control anymore. 
even kind of identify with the natives who say, well, what can we do to bring it back? How about a human sacrifice? <laughs> or a little tom-tom beating or something. And there's this great uh, cheer of relief when the sun shines again. It gets cold. We were in one in Winnipeg a few years ago where the day before the eclipse was 40 below zero. And during the eclipse, I don't know, it was zero maybe, it got still colder because that extra light is now cut off and it gets colder. As a rule, we've been under Sahara where it was 110 when the eclipse began and it goes down 15, 20 degrees during the time the sun covers up, the wind blows up. Uh, it's eerie. It's, it's strange. And the interesting thing is that the Earth is the only place in the entire solar system where you can see its own solar eclipse. There is no other planet that has a moon and the sun in the same inverse ratio of distance and size besides our own. In other words, the sun is 400 times as big as the moon and 400 times as far away. That's not true of any other moon in the solar system and neither is any other planet inhabited. That is a coincidence. <laughs> or is it divine providence? I've heard astronomers say that that proves the existence of God because it's way too improbable it's the same probability as the wind blowing through a junkyard and making a Cadillac. Not very probable that it would be by chance. There's mathematics here. The sun has 400 times the diameter of the moon. The distance of the sun is 400 times the distance of the moon from the Earth. That same ratio does not exist for any other planet in the solar system. Also, the Earth is the only inhabited planet. That those two things should both be true is a probability of billions to one. And the paper I read in physics today